0: Matters of Mortology, a novella, written and read by T.M. Camp. Chapter Six Epigraph That's the cuckoo, you say. I cannot hear it. And that is from The Cuckoo, by Edward Thomas. I awoke late in the night, a sound uprooting me out of a deep slumber. I sat up with a start. The book that had been resting on my chest tumbled to the floor. I'd been dreaming, something heavy pressing on me, weighing me down. Immobilized, its eyes held mine, and then it let out a hideous, piercing scream. I cast about for a moment there in the shadows, my mind a jumble of dream memories and glimpses of reality around me. The room was dim. The fire had burned down and the air hung low with the heady fragrance of smoldering flowers. I repositioned myself on the couch and was just starting to wander back down that dark road into sleep once more when a long piercing cry rang out in the night. Upright, half-standing, I stood quivering in the dim light Resonating with the echo of that cry, my familiars cowered in the corners of the library, rolling their milky eyes at me, mouths agape. Their misty frames shuddered as each new cry rang out, as did my own. Outside, a bird called out from somewhere in the field surrounding the manor. A thin, wavering sound, full of wandering and loneliness, It was not a call I had heard before, but, as I have written already, strange migrations are not unheard of in this region. The cry was repeated several times in the space of a few minutes. My thoughts turned to Mason, alone in his shack. I imagined him staring at the thin door that provided the only security for his modest home, listening to the strange cries echo around him. I went to the window and looked out into the night, but there was little I could see through the thick shroud of mist that settled over the graveyard. Then a faint flicker caught my eye, a brief moment when the strands of mist and shadow parted long enough to let it escape. Mason. Of course, he would not let fear bottle him. He would rise and, taking up one of the heavier implements he used for his work, he'd venture out into the night to investigate. I imagined him there, stalking through the yard with the upraised lantern in his hand as he tracked the strange foreign cries to their lonely source. Perhaps he would think that they came from the creature that had so savagely dispatched his pet. But no bird I knew of could capably commit such cruel violence. Whatever the source of that lonely sound, however strange, It could not be the culprit. But that would not stop Mason from investigating. He, too, had felt the pang of guilt for not preventing the previous night's vandalism. Even unfamiliar bird calls would rouse his renewed diligence. He had his pride, after all. Mason. How he glared and sucked his teeth when I delivered the instructions that afternoon from the boy's uncle. He did not approve of the directives we were to follow in dealing with the desecrated grave. "'It's not a proper thing,' he said to me. "'Why go digging that child up again? He's restful now, ain't he?' "'Neither slothful nor quarrelsome by nature, "'he must have felt strongly to offer such resistance to these instructions.' though I'm sure he also didn't relish the idea of reopening the grave once again. All told, his shovel would have to turn over that dirt five times by the time all of this was completed. I shrugged, gazing upward. The sky was growing dark with the coming of evening, and there was work left for both of us to accomplish before nightfall. "'It is their wish,' I told him, as simply as I could." It is their right. He turned away with a nod, uncharacteristically sulky, and I left him to his work. He was still working when I retired well, retreated, really to my fire and my books. I might have stayed on to help him, I know, but I was tired, and tired of the fretful thoughts that had run through my mind all day, worrying after them like a pack of wolves taking down a deer in winter. No matter. In morning it would be finished, and we could fill up the grave and go on with our work as before. The cry was repeated throughout the night. Sometimes it came from far off, plaintive and faint, so close at other times that it sounded as though the bird were roosting beneath my window. Whether it was a single bird wandering alone or a flock calling to each other, I could not tell. The calls were, at times, uncannily articulate, nearly human even, but so alien, the utterances so strange and foreign to my ears, that I passed this off as merely a fancy born of an unpleasant dream. All through the night the mournful calls went on, pealing out their cold and lonesome dirge, while I sat awake listening, my mind unable to fashion the shape that might— Contain such a cry. My cast had never had much cause to offer courses in zoology at the academy. And so eventually I fell back into a troubled sleep. From time to time, a particularly close cry would jerk me once again out of my shallow nightmares before fading off into the fields once more, leaving me to drift back into shadow and slumber. My dreams that night swarmed with dark-bodied wasps gliding through the shadows between the stars. On and on this went throughout the night, the dreadful calls tapering off only when the first grey streaks of dawn were visible in the east. Only then, with a final wrenching anguish, did the calls melt away. Shaky and weak from lack of sleep, it was not until I heard my sister's footfalls in the room above that I thought of her safety. The immediate guilt of that selfish omission weighed heavily on me. As I said before, night was her waking time, and surely the cries must have frightened her as well. I felt ashamed that all of my thoughts had only been for myself, fleetingly perhaps of Mason. I'd forgotten her completely. I listened to her steps, as I had so often done in the past, trying to translate their rhythm into words, a code of footfalls and paces which, if deciphered correctly, would disclose to me her very thoughts. But the sounds fell hollow, revealing nothing at all. Finally, the dawn long past, I rose and prepared myself for the day ahead. As I dressed, I heard the sound of the dumbwaiter being lowered from above. Inside, I found a sheet of grey paper folded twice upon itself, containing within a single line of my sister's delicate script. Did you hear the birds last night? I smiled, sharing the moment with her. Although we are twins, we do not share a special link of spirit or mind as I have heard some do. And so, our similarity holds no influence over either of us. It was not the first time I regretted the strictures of my caste, which prevented us from any true shared moment or communication. We lived on such meager fare, these dry notes. Yet her words seemed alive to me. I felt the thrill in them the slant of her letters, the speed with which the nib had marked the paper. The morning was chill and dank. The night had left me out of sorts and in need of some distraction. As was my custom, and as had been my father's custom, I typically went into town once a week for supplies. While there, I took time for a few personal errands, to collect my special-made cigarettes, and to pay a visit to Burke's shop so that I might pick over whatever selections he had set aside for me. Usually on that day I would work in the yard until noon, saving my trip for later in the day. It was an incentive to finish my labor quickly, a little trick I had picked up from my father. But that morning I turned my feet towards the village. It occurred to me as I passed out of the lane beyond the manor, that I ought to check in with Mason first "'and see how things had fared during the night. "'But the lure of Burke's shop was too great, "'and my desire for conversation, "'for Burke's intelligent, albeit maddening, conversation, "'was too strong to resist. "'Nor should I have any need to. "'I'd worked hard. "'The season was coming to an end. "'My service would not atrophy "'if I set it aside for the afternoon.' Looking back, I cannot quite see how it would have mattered if I had gone down to the yard that morning instead of breaking my custom. What had happened had happened, and a few hours would matter to no one. So on I went through the mist and the fog, heading for town, and ignorant of what the night had left waiting for me in the yard. What had happened had happened. Chapter 7 Ocpatrium est Pulcius consufare filium, Suasponte rectere facere, Quam alieno metu. And that is from Adelphi by Terence. I know something of the physical nature of bodies, how they are constructed the gentle placements of our organs within this scaffold of bones. Blindfolded, I can trace the arteries and muscles that bind these things together, making us whole. I am well trained in my craft, even to mapping the delicate geography of that sheath which contains us all. There are no mysteries. Not any more. At least, I thought so then. Once, early in my apprenticeship, My father opened a door in my mind, revealing a wider plane of understanding beyond the physical world we worked so diligently to serve. I was very young, and, bringing one of my textbooks to him, I pointed to a word that had perplexed me. Rather than point me to a dictionary to find out on my own, he couldn't resist an opportunity to breathe life into that dry definition for me. The word— was integrity. And this is what he said. Do you know what it means when we say something is integrated? All of its parts fit together, each function complementing the function of the others. Nothing wasted, nothing left out, nothing misplaced. We say that these things are integrated together, fused for one purpose. Now, When we say that a man has integrity, we're speaking of more than just his physical body. We're saying something important about his entire being. His body, mind, and his soul each behaves interdependently. Muscle moves against muscle to propel him forward throughout his life's journey. He joins his beliefs to his mind, his mind to his body, and finally his body is wed to his actions which demonstrate his beliefs. Even the simplest gesture, the passing of a hand across his eyes, for example, can reveal the foundation upon which his soul is built. When a man follows the boundaries drawn by his guiding beliefs, we say that he walks with integrity, for he is integrated. Do you see? I was still rather young for this sort of talk, but if someone is evil— and does evil things, then does that mean he has integrity?" My father nodded. After a fashion, for his actions truly follow his spirit. But through his evil, he exiles himself from something larger still. He led me over to the door of the mason's shack and pointed out into the fields beyond. Look around you. Everything has been brought together by the hand of God, placed not in some random haphazard fashion, but with careful design and clear purpose, which only he alone can see. Out in the graveyard I saw Mason, a much younger, hardier man at the time, digging a grave. My father did not need to point to him when he said, There is true integrity. Chapter 8 Epigraph Margaret Sojourner Lewis, age 37, stands today accused of indecent contact and immoral congress. It is the opinion of this righteous prefecture that, since she chooses to love death, Miss Lewis should be wed to her lover at dawn tomorrow, drawn together in the happy circle of the hangman's noose and that is from The Annotated Whitehall Trial Transcripts of 1863 by Wilson Belding. I often think of my father's words when I visit the village. The people there make such an effort to maintain the outward perception of piety, which serves as little more than a thin shell of propriety around their lives. And they try harder with none other than myself as though they can blind my eyes to the final evidence of all their secrets, each one leaving an indelible mark just beneath their carefully cultivated façade. The blackened liver of the teetoler, the diseased pudunda of the prude, whatever your secrets, all are uncovered in the end. There was a time when I believed that integrity could only be achieved in solitude, that the act of participating within a community of any size led to a mind of fractured loyalties brought about by the attempt to accommodate opposing positions and decisions. And so, by extension, I fancied my own solitude as proof positive of a strong personal integrity well established beyond that of my neighbors. I am old enough now to know how arrogant, how wrong I was. Outside of town I stopped at the west gate and rapped lightly on the watchman's door. I heard him stir within and throw the bolt. His bleary eyes peered out of the inner darkness, nodded silently in recognition, before closing the door once more. Like most others, he did not care to linger long in conversation with me. I waited, half listening to the muffled footfalls rising from within, "'as he climbed the meager height of his rickety tower "'to ring the bell once, and then again. "'I could hear him wheezing as he descended. "'Once more he drew the bolt to peer out at me and nod. "'His face was flushed. "'Soon enough, I thought, "'the council would need to elect a new watchman for the appending "'and, to my experience, die. "'Obvious vacancy.' "'With the warning sounded,' permission granted, and formality of custom complete, I entered the village. As I made my way into town, I saw a few men here and there, merchants readying their custom for the day, laborers on their way to their employment. I nodded to them, and they touched their caps. Their relief as I passed them by was palpable, as though I were the harbinger of death, and not merely her custodian. And, of course— The watchman's tolling bell ensured that I would encounter no women, nor they me. Each year, the winter season drains the village gray, leeching it of life and color. The drab stone and wood buildings cluster around a central square, creating a haphazard maze of lanes and alleys radiating outward. Every structure gives the impression that it might fall down at any moment, the stained and dreary walls sagging under the weight of the slate roofs, settling against each other like companion drunkards staggering home after the public house has closed for the night. Once, I imagine, the village must have been new, and yet it has been this way since I can remember. For all I know, the village will always perch on the edge of decay without collapsing. Perhaps in founding the town, My family cursed it as well. Spring and summer eventually bring some color, some warmth to the town, but not enough to adequately explain why anyone chooses to reside here. Whatever industry or opportunity inspired the original settlement, it has long since faded away, leaving naught but the fundamentals of living and dying. As such, my position is perhaps the most secure in the community— We will always have the dead. Despite the lingering gloom of winter and the troubled times, I felt oddly optimistic that day. My spirits had lightened somewhat, struggling free from the shadow of the previous few days. It might have been the prospect of a visit to Burke's shop, or perhaps the faint yet unmistakable cessation of winter. I cannot say that there was an actual warmth in the air, but at least the cold edge had been dulled somewhat. The overcast sky looked thin to my eyes, bruised from the outside, as though at any moment the sun might finally and at long last batter through to reach us once more. And so, when I heard the faint voice above, I glanced up without a thought. A woman stood on a small balcony, tending to a clothesline strung between two drab buildings that rose on either side of me. As she worked, she hummed softly under her breath, her voice so light I scarce could hear it on the wind. The pale morning light fixed her for a moment in my gaze, in my memory, forever. Her hair coming undone in the wind, the cock of her broad hips supporting the weight of the basket she held with one hand, while she plucked her laundry with the other, her frank and open face gazing back down at me. She should have gone inside, should have put custom ahead of her chores, but she had not. Perhaps she was in a hurry, too busy to bow to ceremony and superstition, too defiant. Perhaps she was curious. Perhaps she did not recognize me there in the shadow between the two buildings. And perhaps I was not mistaken when I thought that, catching my eye, I saw her smile. In that moment, there was nothing that I wanted more than to climb those steps two at a time, take her in my arms, breathe in the smell of her skin, plunge my hands into her hair, turn my neck to her lips. It was a moment, an impulse, It passed. I did not dare look up again. I walked on. Though I continued to visit the village regularly throughout the intervening years, I would not pass that way again. I do not know if that is a sign of integrity or not. I wonder what my father would say. I wonder if I will recognize her when she is brought to me. I wonder if the one who tends to my forgotten flesh will see some faint clue pointing to that moment which I have hidden, which I have treasured for so long. It was a moment, an impulse. It passed. More likely it will be Burke who uncovers my secret, picking over the remnants of my life, selecting the trinkets worth saving, and relegating the rest the junk heap. Perhaps he will find this thin remembrance among my books, poring over my tale and pausing for a moment when he discovers this, my solitary heresy and my rarest shame. Or, perhaps my autobiographical efforts will be eclipsed by the massive wealth of the rest of my library. I imagine that it will feel something like a family reunion for him, since I obtained much of my library from his shop in the village. Burke never let a book go without a wistful struggle, not even to me. The reconciliation with those prodigals might even dull the edge of whatever sorrow he feels at my passing. Not that he will not mourn, I know. My weekly trips into the village, those business-like visits, are little more than pretext that I might visit his shop. Burke and I long ago recognized each other as kindred, a species shared and unique among the dull-minded villagers. They see an unplowed field, measuring its value by the meter and going no deeper than inches into the soil, teeming with mysterious poetry. Every weekday a drudgery, every weeknight a binge, and every Sabbath a hypocrisy. They subsist on the petty gossip of the tavern and the market square, while Burke and I, we eavesdrop on the whispers of God. Burke is no dull native. He came out of the broader world to settle here, he says, to live a life of contemplation and reflection among the simple, honest folk, those same who, within a few years, had robbed him blind. Outsider prices, that's what they called it what they still call it. Even now, fifteen years on, Burke remains the stranger. Only now, as the maxim goes, he knows when to trust a coin and when to use his teeth. I do not know what brought him here, but I know it was not the lure of the simple life. He would not have lasted a week unless he'd had some other purpose to stay among those so unwelcoming, so corrupt, Whether it was misfortune that drove him to this exile, or if he fled some misdeed of his own, regardless of the cause, he soon found himself marooned and unable to return even if he had desired it. Near penniless, he discovered a secret revenue to sustain him, making the most of the innate qualities of those same villagers who had bled him white. On the surface... The village was simplicity itself. Yet below the dull skin, this pond swarmed with black tangles of resentment upon which poisonous minds fed. The long heritage of the village had led to countless little slights, disagreements, and outright swindles over the years. As such. Twenty years before his death, the butcher might have accepted an heirloom brooch in payment for an overdue marker— "'by the blacksmith. "'The story, "'told to the blacksmith's children "'had, over the years, "'raised the volume of the heirloom "'quite considerably in their eyes. "'And, in the recitation, "'so also grew the unfair usury "'of the villainous butcher, "'a perhaps undeserved reputation "'he would take to the grave, "'selfsame upon which "'the blacksmith's children "'finally danced. "'It was Burke, then,' who came to the butcher's wife, offering his sympathies and appropriate comforts. In confidence, he revealed to her his plans to open a small shop. He was seeking merchandise, seed corn with which to start this venture. The butcher had been a man of taste, a collector even. Perhaps Burke could inspect the estate and help ease the loss by purchasing any items upon which her sentiment was not attached? The butcher's wife, bereft of her husband's income, might have allowed for such a possibility. Perhaps she hoped for kinder comforts, in addition to the fresh-faced outsider's money. Her husband had not been a man of gentle deportment, and she was fifteen years his junior. No matter, she'd not married him for love, she would not complicate the comfort of the brute's passing with mournful pretense. And— To the blacksmith's children, Burke soon offered them restitution on their long-standing grudge. Grateful and triumphant, they paid his asking price and celebrated the return of the heirloom. The week the butcher died, died so six more inhabitants of our little community. It was a windfall time for my trade as well as Burke's. Our paths crossed often as we provided our partner services, to those seven families, he tidying up the cast-offs from those lives while I collected the lives themselves. We recognized each other, the resemblance and the irony. His was a comforting presence welcome in their homes, while I was viewed to be a ghoul feeding on their grief. I noted the literary references with which he so liberally seasoned his conversation, and he saw my comprehension as a spark of light within the dark thicket of dull mines surrounding him. It was not long before our friendship was secure. As was his business. In time the villagers began to establish consignments with him in anticipation of their passing, with the proceeds guaranteed to their heirs—minus his generous commission, of course. Burke's shop swelled with curios and antiquities. He made his living in barter as much as he did in coin. In the intervening years he had sifted the petty grievances and paltry heirlooms of their lives many times over, long surpassing the original investment he'd made in the village. Often I wondered if that had not been his plan all along. Nor am I immune to the appeal of his shop. Every piece of merchandise has a story to tell, and Burke delights in recounting the arcane and often scandalous history. I think I must represent a safe outlet for these tales, one with whom he is safe to be indiscreet in revealing the weaknesses of the village, and his craft in exploiting them. I sometimes wonder how he gains such insight into these lives. Burke has a way about him, there is no doubt, and I have no doubt that the butcher's wife, among others, would agree. All the more reason why I look forward to my weekly visits to his shop, though my tastes do not run typical of his customers. I live a Spartan life, and the stories he shares are far more interesting to me than the objects that inspired them. I have no need to purchase someone else's squandered heirlooms but, of course, there are the books. Self-imposed or not, Burke's exile from the wider world does not extend to the shipments that arrive on the monthly coach. The crates that bear his name are packed with rare literary delicacies, and he reads them all with gluttonous, lustful hunger. From the popular fictions of the day to the aged and crumbling relics of the past century, Burke gathers the books all to himself, prowling among them, and devouring all in his eternal Cyclopean hunger. From his clutches I rescue what few I can manage and afford. Were it not for the alignment of our natures, I expect that he would refuse to part with his captives at all. Unlike his other merchandise, he does everything he can to discourage a customer's interests in his books. His solution to the rare inquiry from one of the other villagers is ingenious. To those that he must oblige, that he cannot put off in any other way, he sets a price so high, so ridiculous, that few of them ever consider matching. I have long chided him for this. It is one thing to complain about the dimness of your neighbors. It is quite another to actively discourage them from expanding their understanding. His retort is that An enthusiasm for cheap romance, melodramatic suspense, and tea-party theology does not necessarily indicate a disposition inclined to embrace a broader perspective of the world. I protest that he reads those common, popular books as well. But Burke is never one to be caught in a contradiction. He reminds me that a limited, confectionary diet conditions a palate so that it is no more sophisticated than that of a child's. The wholesome is spat out, shunned in favor of immature tastes. Unlike his prospective customers, Burke has no such limits. Besides, he tells me, any merchant worth his salt takes the time to know his product and that of his competition. And so, Burke manages to keep most of his precious library, more or less, out of those enthusiastic, albeit ignorant, hands, though not out of mine. The familiar squeal of the door to his shop sounds under my hand as I enter. Burke long ago removed the bell in deference to the traditions of my office. Most others of the merchant caste in my village are not so accommodating. I must knock and wait to be admitted, rather than let the bell ring. To enter Burke's shop is to be amazed— It overflows with merchandise from cast-off lives tumbled together. Coming from the contained order of my world, the haphazard maze of aisles and shelves always leaves me feeling a little overwhelmed and, I confess, a little thrilled as well. Each visit to the shop is different from the previous ones. I could spend, and have spent, hours picking through the shelves with no sense of ever coming to an end. New discoveries await everywhere my eye falls. Nothing is ever the same from visit to visit. It is almost as if Burke empties the shop each time I leave, repopulating it with a new stock before I return. At times, shopping there is like trying to practice archaeology on top of an avalanche, in progress. Once, I made a pact with myself that I would remember one single thing, one object, and where it was located in the shop. I picked a small ball of hand-blown glass that rested on a shelf, propping up a collection of cheap pasteboard-bound novellas. It was a very lovely object, though dusty, about the size of a large grapefruit, and shot through with threads of glass within. I left it where I found it, and made a careful notation in my memory of where it was on the shelves. The following week, when I returned, I made my way to the very spot, but found nothing familiar. The glass ball had gone, along with the pasteboard-bound books and even the shelf itself. I strolled through the store and saw that one or two of the pastes had been relocated, but there was no sign of the ball. When I asked Burke about it, he professed ignorance. I suspect he reconfigures his store at whim, Perhaps it creates a sense of urgency in the customer's mind. If you never know the thing you desire is going to be there when you return, you are more likely to make a purchase on the spot. In my case, it is an effective tactic. I typically take my time as I browse, keeping my eyes open for books stuffed here and there among his merchandise. If ever I find anything of interest, I waste no time in snatching it up lest it should vanish immediately. By the time I reach Burke, I usually have four or five purchases tucked under my arm. I am ashamed to admit that sometimes I might have five as many, if Burke has had a good shipment that week. He sits at a high table near the back of the store, surrounded by all of his merchandise like a stone idol staring down upon its burnt offerings. The table serves as his counter and his altar, He makes change out of an old cigar box he keeps to one side. He once confided to me that he configured the aisles of the store so that he could stay at the table and keep watch over the customers from his single point of observation. Like your God, eh? He smiles as he says it, in case I might be offended. I am not. Keeping watch over the Dominion. He keeps watch over the borders. I cannot help but correct him. We are the stewards of the creation within. Burke shrugs, no interest in theology. Well, I can't let everybody rob me blind. Once again I find I have strayed from my narrative and gotten lost in Burke's shop, and not for the first time. I was writing of that one day, when I stood on the cusp of spring with the winter at my back and the washerwoman still humming in my mind. The familiar squeal of the door to his shop sounds under my hand as I enter. From deep within the store I hear Burke's voice rumble, ominous, melodramatic. Enter freely and of your own will. I do so, letting the door swing gently closed behind me as I wade into his chaos, doing my best to keep my head above the surface while I scan the shelves. I have no interest in Burke's main trade. I am no collector of junk store remnants nor antiquities. But there are books. Each new discovery, tucked away here and there, is a seduction, a revelation. By the time I have found Burke at the center of his maze, my arms are heavy with selections. I unload them on his table and, as I always do, I tell him that he will be the ruin of me. He nods, inspecting my treasures with a critical eye. Ornithology? His eyebrow, already cocked, arches even higher. When the wind is southerly? He flips through the tombstone-sized encyclopedia in front of him. Taking up a new hobby, are we? Or just need the exercise? I mumble something about nocturnal egrets. Burke snorts. Sounds more like nightmares to me. He taps the stack of books in front of him, nodding. Which reminds me, he says, rising and backing away into the bowels of his shop. I wait until he once again appears from a completely different direction than the way he left. He carries a parcel wrapped in brown paper, laying it gently on the tabletop between us. I can't make heads or tails of these, he tells me as he tears away the paper. But they're lovely, and... his voice lowers slightly, leaning in. I suspect that they're quite rare. Lovely is the word for them, yes. Not the cheap pasteboards that litter his shop, but something far more elegant. I take each of the books from his hands as he draws them out, running my fingers over the embroidered silk covers, tracing the vague characters stitched into the bindings with golden and scarlet thread. Each book opens with a sigh, my fingertips hot as they spread the thin rice-paper leaves. Inky dragons and birds glide across my eyeballs as I fondle the books, one by one. There are five in all, and I cannot help but give Burke a grateful, shuddering look as I close the last of them. It is a long moment, indeed, before I can remember words enough to ask, Where did you find these? Well, I'm not sure. Burke gives me the smile that every brothel-keeper is born with. Let me think for a moment. I wait. This is his game now, and I do not mind playing it so long as I get these books when I go. Yes, he says at last. These are the new arrivals. Just in this week, they belong to that boy. The dead boy. My hands stop caressing the books. I raise my eyes to his. He meets my gaze. Ceres Ling's son. I nod. Yes, I buried him. Bert grunts. So I heard. There was some squawking from Hampton and the other magpie merchants about it. Regarding? The answer shrugs its way out of him. Some of them didn't like the idea of it. I shake my head. I do not follow his point. He gives me a look striking to the heart of the matter. They weren't overly thrilled to hear a foreigner got planted in their yard, a pagan and idolater sharing holy dirt with their true believers. Hampton was, as usual, the ringleader. Hampton. The local tobacconist and chief Pharisee is not one of my favorites. Unfortunately, to end to my deep regret... His shop as another of my errands to be made that day. "'Do tell,' I asked quietly, my hand drifting across the books, fingers touching them lightly. I won't be able to resist them, I know, once I get them home. Burke sighs. He has even less tolerance than I for those who profess in profane faith with the same breath. "'Ingratia patria!' I nod, only half-listening, wondering if thinly-veiled prejudice was enough motivation to inspire a group of overweight, pompous sluggards to defile a grave, wondering if the pious inhabitants of that village were wretched enough to rouse themselves for that. I thought they might be, just— Strange books for a boy, he says, turning one of the elegant volumes over in his hands. Even a dead one. I shrug. It would not be the first time I purchase a dead man's books. As I've said, Burke was my chief supplier. I suppose, with my own passing, that if he continues to maintain an active business, he will be delighted to absorb my rather extensive library once again though I expect he'll have some trouble accommodating it all, as his shelves are already sagging. He'll certainly have trouble selling any of it, given the contemporary tastes. I am, as they say, old school. I'm amazed she gave these up. He runs his fingers over one of them, faint gold and turquoise threadwork decorating the cover. Rare as they are, since she stopped writing. How do you mean? He looks at me with pantomime incredulity. You mean you don't know? I don't, and I tell him so. My gods? Ceres Ling? The author? I shake my head. Burke's penchant for the dramatic sometimes irritates me. Like many who have drifted into the borderlands of obesity... His enthusiasms and mannerisms are so childlike and delicate, oddly effeminate even, that they strike a grotesque chord in comparison to the massivity of the rest of his figure. At times it can be tiresome to fix my attention on such an odd balance of opposites. Burke gently returns the book to the company of its companions, holding the brown paper over them, as light and loving as a mother swaddling her newborn babe, and— Filling the expanse of his lungs with the breath he required to begin his tale, he began to speak. Chapter 9 Epigraph I have heard the lies, yes, I have heard them, and I believe them all. And that is from Windfallen by Charles Fairchild. Ceres Ling, the things I've heard about her, the stories and gossip and rumors, well, it's just fortunate that the folks around here don't know anything about her past. They wouldn't just cheat her and whisper behind her back. They'd burn her house down. Burke's words reopen a grave in my mind. And, to top it all off, they say she was the reason that Gaines killed himself. I've half a mind to burn our house down myself for all of that. I shake my head, only a few steps down the meandering path of his story, and already he's gotten me quite lost. Gaines? Michel Robert Gaines, the writer? He shakes his head at me. And you say you know books? I have never said so but he continues on regardless. They say she was his mistress, and from what's been told, it seems that he was far more passionate for her than she for him. It's common knowledge that he wrote Bottle of Shadows about her. For her, really. Most of his major stories got their start because of her. I nod, less interested than I feign, for Burke's sake. I remembered Gaines somewhat now, and I recalled that I didn't care for his writing for the most part, though he'd been one of the leading novelists of his generation. I vaguely recalled some mention of suicide on the flyleaf of his final book. I'd read it when I'd been at school on the recommendation of a classmate. It was not my cup of tea, to say the least. Though he'd made his name as a romantic fantasist, Gaines dipped into darker and somewhat distasteful waters during his later years. The lead character in his final work, as I recall to just weeks before he took his own life, is consumed by a succubus, drained of his soul drop by drop until only a husk remains. The book had disturbed me intensely. Had I not already offered my allegiance to the rigorous strictures of my office, I have no doubt that the story would have instilled in me an insurmountable aversion to the female sex as a whole. Gaines was an old name in my mind, a forgotten detail of my student years. Second-hand gossip about his romantic entanglements could not possibly interest me less. Burke, however, reveled in it all. And then, when she was done with him, she tossed him aside without a second thought. Or, so they say. He played his fingertips lightly over the paper parcel, tapping out his words as deliberately as any offer at their typograph. She wrote these books here, but that just scratches the surface. I've heard that she has over a thousand stories to her name. A thousand stories seemed unlikely for anyone's career, however advanced in years or gifted with talent and productivity. A thousand stories, Burke tells me. She wrote in the tradition of her celestial forebears, galvanizing the Eastern mythologies with her own contemporary style. She was, in her own way, the sensation I question whether quality might suffer under the weight of such quantity of output. Burke dismisses the question before I can finish framing it. Don't you even suggest it. Everyone who has read her work says it's masterful. Would that I could claim to be one of them. I cannot help but look to the stack of volumes in front of him. Pityingly, he hands it to me again. As I leaf through it once more, my understanding clears as he continues. Ling hasn't written in our language, and won't, so she says. Our barbarous tongue is far too blunt and crude to shape the elegance of her style. Les traductions augmentant les faltes d'un ouvrage et gâtant les beautés. I recognize the reference, despite his atrocious pronunciation but I am unable to determine whether or not he speaks with admiration or mockery of her views. I recognize the reference, despite his atrocious pronunciation, but I am unable to determine whether or not he speaks with admiration or mockery of her views. As it is, her books have only seen print overseas, and the most avid collectors, here he bows his modest head, We'll pay through the nose for them. They say that no one has managed to gather a complete set of her comprehensive works, but, he says, the brown paper rustling under his fingertips, this will certainly get me started. Unless, of course, you're interested. I wonder, briefly, if he's putting on this show to sweeten the sale. It may not matter, as apparently I am interested enough to ask further after the books. The volume I hold in my hand is a fascinating mix of incomprehensible Asiatic characters and inkbrush illustrations. It is lovely, and the mystery of it recalls to me those eyes behind the veil. I itch to own them all and do my best to hide this from him. Burke, pantomime nonchalant, shrugs. They're supposedly lovely tales, according to the catalogs, full of fantasy and magic, princesses and dragons and curses. That's the sort of thing she wrote about. They might only be fairy stories, but people say she puts everyone else in the pale. Of course, you'd have to learn the language if you ever wanted to read one of them. I did. I wanted to read all of them. I was not, am not, a collector after all. I am an addict. Burke spreads the books out before him in a fan. The silk bindings glimmer in the dim light of his shop. She stopped writing, of course. Her last novel was so... influential that she had to come to this country to escape what she'd stirred up in her own. I wait, knowing he can't help himself but continue. Apparently, a... Uh, Portion of her readers became rather hysterical. I cannot hide my skepticism. Over a fairy tale. This time, Ceres Ling dipped her pen in horror. Tired of princesses and maidens, she sought to sharpen her teeth on monsters instead. From what I've heard, the last book dealt with subjects taboo in any culture, not just theirs something to do with witchcraft or sorcery, possibly worse, even. As I've heard it, people went somewhat mad with all of it. There were unsavory rumors of readers going around opening throats, blood rituals, perhaps worse. Besides, it was all hideous, I understand, but there must have been something powerful in that writing for people to behave that way. I press him for more about the book itself. The novel was a story of a family cursed for some unknown reason, firstborn children disfigured in some distasteful manner. There's always a curse in their stories, of course. Their culture thrives on them. But, of course, they say we're the barbarians. And the story, I remind him, As I said, it's a horror story, a novelette, really, one of the shortest things she ever wrote, but it was long enough that people were either clamoring for her blood or living by her book like it was holy writ. Quite by accident, her little dalliance in the macabre sparked something quite like a civil war. The church, their church, of course, excommunicated her and she was forbidden by that iron-hand government of theirs from ever writing again. Strange as it seems now, such censorship was not uncommon in those times. Even the relatively permissive attitude of our own ministry would, from time to time, provide gentle guidance to the authors and artists of the United Dominion but such passive involvement paled in comparison to the purges and pogroms acted out by the iron hand upon its own peoples. So, long story short, she left for good. Forever. Does she continue to write? Is she writing still? Burke shrugs again with finality. She refuses to write in our language, and none of her own publishers will consider her, for fear of reprisals from the hand, or, worse still, another civil outbreak of madness inspired by her works. He grins at me, wry and sour. So, you can only imagine, as I was saying, what Hampton and the others would have to say if they got their teeth into the meat of her story. Too well, yes. I could imagine. As it is, the tilt of those eyes, the strange music of that voice, that's enough as it is for them to justify their treatment of her. He sighs, betraying thoughts so similar to my own. I tamp down the embers of my jealousy. I am no schoolboy. Burke shakes his head. I could only imagine what they'd do if they knew her history let alone read those books. I looked down at the small treasure of books arrayed before me. I cannot afford them. I do not need them. I must have them. Burke, of course, knows all of this better than I myself. So you be careful with those rarities. I don't know why she would even bother entrusting them to you, but there it is. I opened my mouth to answer, but close it again. He winks. They're yours. She left them here for you. I wasn't supposed to tell, but... He shrugs. Whatever it was, you made an impression. But I only met her briefly just a moment or two, and not in the best of circumstances. The gears of my mind work over all of this. She left these books for me. Don't get too impressed, he tells me. I wouldn't want the damn things in my shop for long. It's all right for you, so far out of town. Some of us are in striking distance. But why did she leave them for me? What did she say? He shakes his head. She didn't say, not exactly. I had the impression you'd done her a favor, and she was grateful. It was hard to understand her, though, through the veil. She came here herself. Burke does not smile now. He does not need to. I turn the parcel over in my hands, baffled by the gift. What was it called, I wonder aloud? That last book of hers, is it one of these? Not what I know. I didn't think to ask until after she'd gone, but it's called the monster, or possibly the dragon, The few critics in this country who've read it disagree on the title. It's the rarest of all her published works. Most of the copies were confiscated by the hand. They're not opposed to an old-fashioned bonfire when the season is right. You mentioned something about a curse? Burke looks away before he answers, making a show of drawing up a receipt for my other purchases. As I understand it, The story tells of a burning thirst, a necessity to quaff living blood for survival. I pay for my books. Burke will not take my money for the ones my eastern neighbor left for me. And I head out to see to my other errands, impatient to return home so I can enjoy my unexpected boon. Burke, for once, seems relieved to see me go. Chapter ten Epigraph The dismal practitioner must at all times recall to himself his role as servant to the community. The temptation for overfamiliarity, even friendship, must be resisted. To bear the burden of so many sorrows is counter to the duties of your office. Likewise it is extremely bad for business. And that is from the personal correspondence of Thomas Harvey Nichols, executioner. Hampton draws at each breath the way a newborn suckles, with a tentative desperation that hovers over the boundary of life and death, and when he exhales, It is as if his entire frame were forcing the grudging ethereal gases out of himself in some strange exorcism of oxygen. I dread visiting his establishment and, if not for his special blend tobaccos, I doubt I would choose to indulge in his presence at all. Stepping into his shop should be a peaceful, luxuriant experience, the warm pungency of his wares drifting in the air around me. I want to close my eyes and give myself over to burial in that dark, rich soil. But the initial moment of peace is always broken by Hampton's locomotive approach up the main aisle, snuffling and puffing as he greets me with the fatuous grimace that serves as his only smile. My hand pumped to numbness, he wipes his palm on that perpetual apron of his, An unconscious gesture, I assume, to remove any lingering taint of death our brief contact might have left behind, and bids me to enter, making his customary apologies for my order being not quite ready as such, as he charges down the aisle to his work table at the back of the shop. I nod and grind my teeth. The purchase is a standing order which I collect every week on the same day. It would not challenge him to prepare it ahead of my arrival, but then he would not have the pleasure of battering me with his erudite observations and questions while I wait. Hampton's beliefs have long plagued me with irritation. I begrudge no man the security of his faith, but his annoyed me for the simple fact that, at a base level, his philosophy ran parallel to my own. The irritation lay in the simple fact that Hampton had the singular ability to not only express our shared beliefs rather poorly, but he also managed to justify them for exactly the wrong reasons. Hampton was a child, dissecting a hummingbird to expose the clockwork he asserted must be there, for did it not buzz? Such was his logical progression on all matters. There is nothing so irritating as being forced to admit agreement with a man you believe to be an utter fool in all else. Even the damned did not deserve such a fate. And, salt in my wound, he called me reverend, when he knew full well that my office has no formal theological certification, nor do I carry the weight of ordination. But that did not discourage him from assigning to me a lofty title equal to his own vanity, whether I deserved it or not. I left him to hobble away in the back of his shop while I browsed the racks and shelves of jars, each filled with such rich aromas. Common cigarettes were not to be found among his stock, as Hampton considered them a feeble, bastard product of foreign lands. Moreover, in comparison to his own aromatic delicacies, common cigarettes stank my own, of course, being the only exception to this, as they were of his own manufacture. He protected his vanity by wrapping my fags in darker treated papers rather than the common white-wrapped smokes of the working class. I had discovered the art of tobacco when I'd been away at school. Despite Hampton's vain elevation, my own profession was of the working class after all and I'd become sufficiently accustomed to cigarettes, so much so that I was somewhat reluctant to give over the habit once I'd returned home. As it has been said already, I am an addict to my core. Despite Hampton's periodic pleadings, I would not consider a pipe. I was, I felt, far too young for such an affectation, and pipes had always struck me as fussy things, less meant for enjoyment than as something which someone could use to occupy their hands during awkward, conversational lulls. Hampton accepted my new vice eventually, working for days to reduce the proper blend of tobaccos and spices, wrapped in dark papers, soaked in clove oil. Despite his other failings, the man was a master of his craft, and my weekly visits were secured after the first sample of his new, exclusive blend. Not even his insistence to refer to them as cigarillos would dissuade me from placing a standing order. In his shop that day, I ran my fingers over the various jars and considered giving up my vice altogether as I had done every week for time out of mind. Not for my health, no, but because of my irritation with Hampton himself. One day I would finally succumb to my impulses and, I was afraid, take out ten years of disagreement and frustration on him. He was, I have no doubt, blithely unaware of my dislike. I suspect he even thought us to be friends. Behind me, Hampton's voice rose and gained shape as he returned, still talking. I gathered that he had just finished up a rather long winded, even for him, diatribe on one of his favorite topics, specifically the inferiority of all things foreign. He stared at me, puffing in earnest, holding out a paper wrapped parcel in his hands. His eagerness to please, his desire to secure my goodwill and agreement, only further increased my dislike of the man, and I tried hard to keep those things submerged beneath a placid, albeit bland, expression. Guilt overtook me as it so often did. I had to believe that what lay at the core of his soul was good, even if it had been encased over the years in material far more suspect. But he was beneath the gasping meatiness of him, a good-hearted man. I realized that he was waiting for my response. I nodded, vaguely, hoping that I was not agreeing to anything more egregious than his typical idiocy, and reached to take my order from him. Hampton, however, retained his grip on the little hostages and stared me down with eyes that had gone gradually yellow over the years, like the meat of a fresh-sliced apple rotting in the air. Why then, Reverend Plinge, would you allow them to set down roots as it were? His voice had an unusual, accusatory tone to it, almost surly and certainly not his typical deferential manner. I don't quite follow you, I replied, desperate, trying to recall his last comments. What had he said? Something about foreigners? He snuffled, vague and indignant. Why would someone such as them bury a child so far from their own land, unless they had no plans to return? Ceres Ling, I thought. He's talking about Ceres Ling my mind cast back to the muddy footprints found around her poor son's gravesite, desecrated for no other reason than that she was an outsider. It occurred to me that the quality of exile forced upon me by my position might lie at the heart of the sympathy I felt for her. Why would you allow them, reverend? It's not their land, it's ours. And they defiled it with their unholy rituals, their false gods, There's some that have been saying that the likes of those shouldn't be putting their dead in our dirt, and that you ought not to have allowed it. The anger and hurt mingling in his muddle eyes infuriated me. Would that I could say that my response was born of fatigue after so busy a season, that I'd not intended to lace my words with such venom. But the truth of it is that I had harbored similar concerns." Choosing the conscience of my office over that of my heart. Confronted by Hampton's ignorance and prejudice, and perhaps ashamed of my own, I bristled immediately. If it is any comfort to you, you are not alone in your opinions, I said coolly. He nodded at this, and I could tell that he expected me to agree with him. He grimaced broadly in satisfaction, the closest approximation to a smile I had ever seen him present. I cut him off before he could respond. Indeed, I could not tell you who, for I do not know myself who it was, but there at least was one person in this blessed little village of ours who not only shares your opinion that the boy does not belong in our graveyard, but they went so far as to expel him from it. Hampton's eyes narrowed, and he sniffed, uncertain. How do you mean, Reverend? I mean that some fine, upstanding member of our holy little parish stole into the graveyard last evening and attempted to dig up the poor child, disturbing the rest that death had seen fit to bestow upon him. What? His surprise struck me as affected, and I understood that he must have known about the event if not participated in it himself. I don't pretend to know, Hampton, but it happened all the same. And when the watchdog caught them in the act, they gutted the poor animal, leaving her carcass for Mason to discover. Hampton gobbled at surprise at that last twist of the knife. Mason was well-liked in the community. He spent his day off each week in the veterans' hall, playing checkers with the rest of the old duffers, including Hampton. In my rage, I had the presence of mind enough to realize that Hampton could not have done such an act. He was an ass, but he was not so cruel. Whatever he knew about the vandalism, it was unlikely that he'd been directly involved. But still, he'd known. Or, at least, he'd heard about it after the fact, I had no doubt. I slapped my hand down, rattling the jars down the length of the countertop, and noting with satisfaction that Hampton's eyes widened. You tell them, I ground the words between my teeth. You tell them when next you see them, at the lodge, after your pious weekly services, tell them that I received their message, and kindly deliver to them my response. Go to hell. Reverend, it was all I could do not to slap him. Leave off the hollow honorifics, you fat hypocrite. The commission I have is not a holy one, but the office I serve is. The graveyard has been in the care of my family for seven generations. We were the first ones here, and one day we'll bury you all before we move on. I leaned in close to him except for those bastards that dug in my dirt. I'll not bury them. Terminus sees more than you think, Hampton. God is not mocked, and your friends will die knowing it. I'll see that they rot above the ground. If my dirt is too good for that poor doomed boy, then it's certainly too good for them. Tell them that, Hampton. He nodded, a small bubble of snot forming at one nostril, undulating with fear. It popped, and my anger dissipated. Hampton wasn't the sort to go into the fields at night with a shovel over his shoulder. Of all his miserable qualities, mutterer, racist, hypocrite, he was no vandal. He'd gossip all day long, but he'd never act. The craven, petty man before me wasn't even worth the effort I'd put into my indignation. I'm ashamed of it, even now. Wearily, I turned and left his shop without another word. I was only a few streets away when I realized that I'd left my cigarettes behind. After my lapse of temper, I hadn't the stomach to return for them. It was going to be a long walk home. The watchman rang the bell as I passed through the village gates. Not for the last time did I think of the washerwoman so content on her balcony. Had she seen me? Had she known me? The bell rang again at my back, releasing the village from their confinement. I shook my head, a bitter taste filling my mouth at the sound. They ought to fear hypocrisy more than heresy. You've been listening to part two of Matters of Mortology by T.M. Camp, written and read by the author, with music composed by Devin Anderson. To find out more about the author or to download additional chapters, visit www.tmcamp.com. He led me over to the door of the mason shack.